the morning, and you can open your Bibles to Psalm 131 this morning. Psalm 131. This is a very brief and simple psalm, and I think of it as I look at it as sort of a follow-up to Philippians. Just a few weeks ago, we finished a study in the letter of Philippians, Paul's letter to the Philippians, rather, and as I look at this psalm, I, I really kind of think of it as a follow-up to that. It, well, I, maybe I should say properly a precursor to that. It came before it, didn't it? In the Old Testament to the New. A precursor to Philippians. So maybe Philippians is Paul's theology of Psalm 131. Maybe I should reverse it and say it that way. In that letter to the Philippians, you know Paul uh, wrote about his contentment in Christ. That's how he finished that letter, about finding contentment in the righteousness of Christ that was not his own, but that had been given to him by faith. And this is a psalmist's poetic expression of that theological truth, of that gospel goodness that Paul unveils to the Philippians. And this psalm, again, is very brief. It is what Charles Spurgeon called a short ladder that rises to very great heights. A simple psalm, but a very difficult one to do, as it were. So, young worshipers, as you young Christians listen uh, to this psalm and to the sermon, you can think about something and draw a picture for me again. A few weeks ago, I had you draw a picture of contentment, and some of you showed me your pictures, so I saw some of them, and those are always fun to see. They ranged from lounging in a hammock under a tree to enjoying a smorgasbord of snacks and video games. And I can totally understand how you would see that as being contentment, although I will tell you it needs a little refinement, so we'll continue to grow in that area. But today I'm going to challenge you to something a little more difficult maybe, but kind of similar. See if you can draw a picture of composure. You might actually have to listen to the sermon a little bit in order to know what to draw, but see if you can draw a picture of composure. This is Psalm 100. And 31, a song of ascents of David. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul Within me, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but these words of our God will stand forever. O Lord, we pray again, as we always must, that you would, by your Spirit, open our eyes, allow us to see the goodness and the beauty of your gospel in this, your word, and to believe it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So in the early days of Mary's and my life in Macon, Georgia, where we moved 13 years ago, doesn't seem that long to me, but it was 13 years ago. We had not long, been there not for long, and a very gracious couple from one of the churches in town, there were several churches there that took an interest in the campus ministry that we were a part of. 
and supported it and encouraged it and loved its students. And so a number of different people were curious to get to know who is the new campus minister here in town. And so this very gracious older couple invited us to dinner at their house. They wanted to genuinely welcome us to town and get to know us and encourage us and help us to get to know them and this new city of ours. It was a very genuine invitation, a very genuine welcome, and we very much appreciated their wonderful hospitality. But it was also kind of like a first date. It kind of had that feeling to me. It was was sort of that uh, sense of an evening filled with first impressions, you know? You, you know, the feeling and the experience of that. And, and uh, a sense of, even in an innocent way, of trying to show our self-importance to each other, to, to kind of prove ourselves to one another. And, you know, I'm, we're here because of this, and, and, you know, you should be at our house because of this. None of that was said, but it was kind of felt, at least I felt it. And the woman was a wonderful hostess, very prim and proper and composed as a hostess, as we might have anticipated, and her husband was likewise In the course of the conversation at dinner, the husband was very curious to talk theology, which is, is, uh, you know, that's one thing that uh, a pastor tends to to get. People want to talk shop with us and talk theology, and so he wanted to learn a bit about me and express a bit about himself as well, his likes and his dislikes. And he began to lament the the common man-centered theology of the church which was so prevalent then and still is now. The sort of theology that's expressed by people saying, Jesus is knocking at the door. Won't you just open the door for him so that he can come into your life? Or maybe even worse, uh, the devil has cast his vote against you and Jesus has cast his vote for you and now it's up to you to cast the deciding vote. He had evidently heard a lot of this stuff and and he didn't like it. He didn't see how it fit with Scripture, and he was lamenting these things. And even some of the self-help Christian sort of psychology that was beginning to circulate in certain ways. You know, you just pray a certain prayer in a certain way, and God will do all the things for you that you want and even need. And he was lamenting all these things. He was kind of getting riled up and upset about some of these things. And, and I know that he wanted for me to respond in kind and to say, I agree, I, I don't like those things, and I don't intend to go that way with my ministry. And as he continued along in his own gracious sort of way, his wife was listening along, and, and I could see that she was beginning to get a little bit riled up, a little bit upset at the things that he was saying, and not at him, but along with him, in agreement with him. Yeah, that's right, that's right. Go ahead and say, say more, say more, that's right. And finally, she broke out and she said, Those doggone Armenians. And her husband very graciously and tenderly put his hand on her arm and he corrected her. Armenians, dear. Arminians. So much for gracious and composed southern hospitality. I mean, suddenly the the ice was just sort of broken and, and the feelings were on the table. It was sort of awkward sort of odd. It was one of those moments that we all just kind of had to pass by and pretend like it didn't happen. When we think of composure, we think of outward presentations. 
even controlled expressions of self-importance. You know, as I begin to preach a sermon like this with the title of composure, I almost feel like I ought to come up here with my hair disheveled and, and undo my robe a little bit, let the mic hang down and just show a lack of composure. Because, you know, we think of it in terms of outward appearances and presentations and controlled expressions of self-importance, whether it's the perfectly combed hair, got to straighten it back up, or the neatly dressed children or the serenely manicured lawn or the flawlessly crafted words, right? You know, even in a sermon, the flawlessly crafted words and perfectly and cleverly said things that we want to do and to say especially these things when they come and are maintained under some duress or under some pressure, under some outward force that would work against them. That's what we think of when we think of composure. But in emphasizing the outward presentation, we talk our souls to sleep in a dangerously deceptive lie. One that tells us that composure is merely the appearance of importance. That it's merely the outward appearance of togetherness and even perfection. And it's a lie. The gospel tells us otherwise, of course. What is gospel composure? It is not an outward appearance. You know, the psalmist tells us clearly it's an inward reality. What is it that goes on in the head and the heart and the soul of one who has been found in Christ, as Paul wrote in Philippians. What goes on in the head and the heart and the soul of one who has been found in him and wears the righteousness of Christ himself by faith? What goes on in such a person inside a composed, as it were, Christian? King David wrote about this in this psalm. This is one of the songs of ascents. You saw the title of it. That means that it's one of the poems, the songs that the Israelites sang together in groups, families, villages, etc. As they traveled from their towns up to Jerusalem, the geography required the climb. It was at a higher elevation. And so they call them songs of ascents. As they ascended to Jerusalem for the annual feasts and festivals that Scripture called for, to gather God's people together under His gracious care, as they ascended to Jerusalem, they would sing these songs together. And this one is a peek into the soul of a man who was very important. A king who so disregarded outward appearances that... When the Ark of God was recovered from the Philistines, maybe you remember this story, when the Ark of God was recovered from the Philistines and was making its way back into the city, what did David do but to disrobe his royalty, to set aside his royal garments that made him different from all of the other people, and in his undergarments let his hair down and danced like a child with joy in front of the procession with such disregard for outward appearance that it upset his wife, Michael, at the time, who rebuked him for it. She so longed for her husband to maintain the outward dignity, the appearances of composure, that she rebuked him for his actions, and the Lord rebuked her. 
with barrenness for the rest of her life. These words not only are David's, but they are also, we have to see, the words of the greater king of Jesus himself, who would come a thousand years later. Because each psalm, as you read a psalm, you have to know, you can read it in several, not just can, but you should read it in several different ways. They are the words of the author, certainly, in their context. They also are to be your words. They're given there for you. And they're also the words of Jesus. They are his prayers, his words that he made use of frequently in the Gospels, surely more than we know in the Gospel accounts. He adopted these words as his own, and they should become your words as well. These are a peek into the soul of a lover of the gospel who's living in the noise of daily life. The gospel, you know, takes root first deep inside of a soul, and eventually it shows its fruit outside. I heard someone recently put it this way. They said, it's easy to count the seeds in the apple, but nobody can count the apples in the seed. In other words, the gospel takes root in a soul and it begins to germinate. It sinks roots deep into your heart and gradually it begins to grow as a sapling and over the years it produces branches and leaves and eventually fruit. The fruit that was in the seed from the very beginning. No one can count how much of it there will be, but there will be fruit from the seed And one of those fruits is gospel composure. It's a state of being not forced by will. It's a state of being that is learned in relationship with God who made you. David here reflects backwards, actually, in this psalm. He works backwards from the results to the process to the hope that bore the fruit in order to show that gospel composure means three things. It means, first of all, that I'm freed from escapism. Gospel composure means that I'm freed from escapism. David hints at that freedom by saying what he's not. In verse 1, he says to us what he's not. He says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. Everybody, every one of us has a mode of operating, an MO, as we call it, right? An operating system in technical terms for you computer wizards out there, or or all of us, we deal with some kind of operating system every day. Some of us don't even know it. You who are outdated and outmoded and behind the times still use DOS. Do you remember DOS, that old computer program, that operating system? We used to have a computer in the 1980s It was just a plastic box. It didn't even have a hard drive in it. You had to stick one of those big, soft, floppy drives in it just to make the thing turn on. DOS was its operating system. Or most of us nowadays are updated a little bit, and we use Windows. Windows is our operating system of daily life. It's the platform on which we make our lives function, at least in our computer lives. And some of you, some of you who think you're on the cutting edge and better than everybody else, You use something called lion or leopard or bobcat or something like that. You mac people, whatever it is. It's something feline, I think. We all have an operating system, right? And in your fallen condition, your operating system is a plan of escape. It's a plan of escape 
to defend yourself against a hostile world. And what it amounts to, your plan of escape, whatever your mode of operating is, your plan of escape is purely driven by self-will. Self-will. You can see it more clearly by beginning to ask yourself the question, how do I respond to pressure? How do I respond to duress? How do I respond to frustration and anxiety? Am I passive or am I aggressive? Do I retreat in fear or do I forge ahead maybe in fury? Do I burn with resentment or do I plot revenge? What is it? What do you do in the face of duress and pressure and anxiety? What's what's your operating system? Regardless of what it is, they're all the same at heart. They all are self-will. A psalm like this one allows us to see beneath the surface of our own soul. And sometimes it's helpful to see it more clearly by actually taking the psalm and turning it upside down, turning it backwards into its anti-psalm. So listen carefully. This is this psalm in reverse. This is the, the what do we call it, the, the back masking or something. If you played an old vinyl record backwards and you heard the evil uh, message behind the song that was so wonderful, here it is. This is the the anti-psalm of Psalm 131. O self, my heart is proud. I'm absorbed in myself. And my eyes are haughty. I look down on other people. And I chase after things too great and too difficult for me. So of course I'm anxious and restless inside. It comes naturally like a hungry infant fussing on his mother's lap. Like a hungry infant, I'm restless with my demands and worries. I scatter my hopes onto anything and everybody all the time. Anxiety and restlessness and and pressure of the demands and the worries force us in a direction. They force us to escape. Why? Because we want to protect our self-importance. We want to protect our appearance of composure. David claimed these three particular modes of escape, pride, arrogance, and ambition, in this psalm as some sort of an admission of his earlier struggles. Think back on David's life a bit with me for a moment. David knew pride. Here he says, O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. In other words, I am not self-trusting. I'm not opinionated. I'm not headstrong. But I was. You remember the story of David as a young boy, a shepherd boy. His older brothers, he was the youngest. His older brothers were off to war with the Israelite army, facing down the Philistines. Goliath, their giant hero, challenging the the Israelites at every turn. And David's father sent him out to the battle lines with some supplies for his brothers to check on his brothers to see how they were doing. So David went and he arrived at the battle lines to check on his brothers. He delivered the supplies and he saw the scene with this giant Goliath challenging the Israelites and none of the Israelites responding to take up his challenge. And David challenged the Israelites. He said, why are you afraid of that guy? What's wrong? Why has nobody gone out to challenge that guy? Here he was, a teenage boy. And his oldest brother, Eliab, responded to him angrily. He said to David, I know why you came here, David. You came out to see the battle. You just came out to watch the battle. 
Eliab wasn't totally right about that. But as an older brother, he said one more thing. He said, David, I know how conceited you are. Now, Eliab's motives were jealousy. He was jealous that David was apparently displaying some bravery that Eliab and others had not. But your family tends to know you. An older brother tends to know his younger brother and see him in eyes that the younger brother can't see. And this older brother looked at his younger brother and he said, I know how proud you are, David. Now go home. David knew pride. David knew arrogance as well. He says here, Oh Lord, my eyes are not raised too high. In other words, I am not superior to others. I don't look down on other people. Oh, but I did. I did. David would admit. You know the story of Bathsheba. He drew in this woman who was not his wife. And in order to cover his own sin, to preserve his own self-importance, to protect his own image, David called Uriah, her husband, back from the battle lines and attempted to get Uriah to go into his wife in order to cover David's sin. But Uriah would not do it. So David sent Uriah back out to the battle lines with orders that he be sent to the front lines where he surely would be killed. David looked down on Uriah from on high. He was arrogant and superior to Uriah in his own eyes. David also knew ambition. The Lord, he says, I do not occupy myself with things too great or too marvelous for me. In other words, I'm not reaching farther than providence will allow me to reach. But I have before. Again, an admission on David's part. Late in his days, in his almost old age as a king, David should have by then known better. Surely he did. But still, moved by the desire to prove his strength as a king still, he called on his generals to go and conduct a census among the people. To count their numbers. To see just how strong David still was. One of his generals actually warned him against it, knowing with spiritual eyes perhaps that the Lord would not be pleased. And David did it anyway. Count the men. And for nine months his men went out to count the people of Israel to see how many hundreds of thousands of fighting men David had at his command in order to preserve his sense of importance, to see how big and strong he was. David knew pride and arrogance and ambition. They were his MO, his mode of operating for composure. They were his default in duress to escape and to protect his sense of importance. Pride says, I'm right in myself. Arrogance says, I'm right compared to you. And ambition says, I'm enough on my own. And Each of them is an expression of a fear that is common to every one of us. Do you know what it is? The fear of man. Pride, arrogance, and ambition. All three of them are an expression of the fear of man, which we all share in common. If you look around the room for a moment, Chad Scruggs did this to you sort of awkwardly in humor last week. told you to look at your neighbor. I'm telling you to look again. Take a look around the room and see the people that are around you. These are people that you come to church with. Many of whom are people that you feel the most comfortable with, right? I mean, you would expect that and hope for that in the midst of a Sunday morning. But at the same time, they are the people who make you the most fearful. In some sense, because you wonder, 
What will they think if they see me get irritated with my kids? What will they think if they know what I do when I'm alone? What will they think of me if they learn who I was before I was here? What will they think of me if they see me lose my composure? And your heart responds with your mode of operating. Your heart responds with pride and arrogance and ambition. In your own fallen way, you escape the fear. You get away from the fear of man. But the gospel says stop. The psalm says stop. And remember Paul's sanctified lack of ambition from Philippians. Remember that? His sanctified lack of ambition. I have no more need to prove myself. Because I don't fear man anymore. What do I have instead? I have the righteousness of Christ. A righteousness that's not my own. Being composed in the gospel means that you are freed from your escapist mode of operating. You don't need it anymore. But rejecting this fallen MO is the result of something. What? What does it result from? Remember, David is working backwards in this psalm in a sense. You're freed from your escapism because you've been elevated to maturity, he says. He goes on, verse 2, But I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. Not long after Jesus had taken three of his disciples up onto the mountain and they witnessed the transfiguration, this beautiful and amazing scene that unfolded before them. He returned from the mountain to his disciples, to the people, and began to teach and to heal and was attracting great crowds. Many people wanted to come and see him and hear him and be healed and listen to his words. And the disciples, seeing the scene unfold around them, recognizing that that they had his particular attention even as he taught these thousands of people that came to listen and they were there with him associated with him important by association and the disciples began to wonder full of their own sense of self-importance they began to debate among among themselves which one of us is going to be the greatest in the kingdom because surely jesus is as these crowds are coming he's going to inaugurate his kingdom soon And one of us is going to be more important than the rest because we're obviously more important than the rest of these people who are coming to listen. So which one of us is going to be the most important? And they actually had the audacity to ask him the question. Jesus, we're just wondering. When you bring your kingdom, which of the 12 of us is going to be the most one? Who's going to be the most important? I mean, who's your right-hand man? And he answered them with an answer that they surely were not looking for. I don't know what they were looking for exactly besides their own name tagged up on the bulletin board. But he gave them something they didn't necessarily want. He called a child in among them in what's now one of the best known Bible stories in the book. And he said to them, I tell you the truth. Unless you change and become like this child then not only will you be unimportant in the kingdom of heaven, but you won't even be there. You will never get into the kingdom of heaven unless you change and become like a child. The one who humbles himself like this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, he said. Again, listen to what David says in this psalm. He puts it this way. I've calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child. This is a king writing. Like a weaned child 
with his mother is my soul within me. The operative word here, of course, is weaned. Weaned. What does it mean to be weaned? It means that something that once meant everything to you has now come to mean nothing to you. That's what it means to be weaned from something. And, of course, you can see it in the picture that David portrays here. A child from birth finds its nourishment and even its relief of fear at its mother's breast. It's natural. That's how he was made to be. And in his moments of distress, his moments of hunger or of fear, he shows his anxious tears and his frustration, his biting anger even. An infant will do it. It's, it's, it's in their soul. He longs for his mother's breast and he squirms in anger and cries out in fear and hunger until he gets what he wants. But as natural as relationship is and as helpful as it is and good as it is for his life early on, the relationship can't last. It wears out its welcome, which I'm sure some of you mothers would agree with. And it even stunts the growth of the child until he's weaned. Until he's weaned and elevated to maturity. And once he is, he's calm and he's quiet. Sitting on his mother's lap, he is so close to her breast, so close to what gave him fulfillment and security in his past, and now he doesn't need it. He's calm and he's quiet. David has been weaned, and so must you and I, for gospel composure. But weaned from what? Now's the time to remember Philippians. Again, go back to that letter of, to the Philippians, and remember, what are we weaned from Remember what Paul wrote to them. What is that one thing that you simply, absolutely, positively can't live without? Remember that? In Philippians 3, Paul explained to them the various elements of his self-importance that now were not only unimportant, but they were rubbish to him. His ritual and his heritage, his morality and his personality his legal standing, all of these badges of self-importance that he completely disregarded because he found himself in Christ. What are the things that you absolutely positively can't live without? Remember those things, that approval of that one person or the friendship with another or the respect of that other person and even the guilt of some particular sin that you carry along with you as some badge of achievement. What is that thing that requires your escape, that requires your pride, your arrogance, and your ambition to protect? We all have some secret thing down underneath, some sense of guilt that we hang on to, that we know it's there and nobody else can see it. We've all learned to protect it. I heard a joke about, uh, some version of a joke anyway, about a guy who thought it would be funny to put notes on 10 of his co-workers' desks. And the notes all said the same thing. They all simply said, all is discovered, flee immediately. And the next day, eight of them were gone. I mean, we all have something like that. I mean, if somebody put that note on your desk anonymously, would you flee? What is it? What is it, that thing that, that is hiding behind your self-protective 
cover. We all have those things. If anybody else knew what they were, we would be ashamed. But the Lord knows. And for the sake of gospel composure, He will wean you from it. He will wean you from your hidden pacifiers that you cling to. Remember when this psalm was sung, we, we noted it in the introductory title to the song. It was a song of ascents. It was the song that the Israelites sang together when they were returning to where? To Jerusalem. They were ascending up to Jerusalem. And why? Because in the Old Testament, the Lord had made prescriptions for the people of the countryside to come into the city several times a year to celebrate feasts and festivals as it were to come back onto their father's lap. At scheduled intervals throughout the year, his people would come singing their gospel songs in order to return to their father's lap. They were corporate reminders of God's love as a father for his people. They were elevated to maturity by returning to the lap of their father calmly and quietly. Now, if gospel composure means that I'm freed from escapism, and it reveals that I'm elevated to maturity, then it comes about because I'm resigned to gospel hope. Verse 3, David writes it this way, O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. O Israel. First of all, he calls you by name. O Israel, he says. What does that name have to do with you? There are two things. First of all, if you remember its origin, in Genesis 35, you read the story about Jacob, whose name meant deceiver. And that's what he was. Jacob was a deceiver. He had deceived his brother Esau. He had deceived his father Isaac. He had deceived his father-in-law Laban. Jacob was a deceiver. He was unfit to be called a friend. In Genesis 35, in redemptive mercy, God had taken an interest in him. In moments before, God had met him in this mysterious encounter in which, during the course of a night, Jacob, the deceiver, wrestled with God. He struggled with him all night long, and God, at the end of the night, marked his hip. With Jacob's physical weakness, he wrenched the socket of his hip to mark his weakness, and then he mercifully changed Jacob's name. Jacob, you no longer are the deceiver. You are Israel. Israel. He who struggles with God. He in whom God has taken an interest. He with whom God is engaged. Jacob, you're no longer the deceiver. You are the one in whom I am interested. You are the one on whom I have placed my love. The second thing about this name is this. This name became the common name for the church in the Bible, not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. Paul wrote it this way. He said, not all who are descended from Israel are Israel. In other words, not everyone who was born of the family of the man are now a part of the body. The name Israel, the one whom God loves, doesn't just apply to a man. It applies to a body of people, the church of which you are a part. 
And so David uses the name, O Israel, O church, O you who struggle with God, you in whom God has taken an interest, O my child. He calls you by name. And he calls you to hope in the Lord. Now, what exactly that means, we could extrapolate all kinds of ideas from the psalm itself, all kinds of things to hope for, but it's best to start close to the psalm. That's always helpful. And this psalm, conveniently for us, has a sister psalm tied to it. Psalm 130. You might take a look there and see what it says. We'll read it together. Psalm 130, which actually begins to name the hopes that lead into Psalm 131. And it reads like this, with my own edits and additions. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord, hear my voice, I hope. Let your ears pay attention to my pleas for mercy, I hope. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you, I hope, that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in His word I Hope, O Israel, hope in the Lord. For with the Lord there is steadfast love to hope for, and with Him is plentiful redemption. So be hopeful, for He will redeem you from all your iniquities. The one who knows Christ, as Paul wrote to the Philippians, the one who has been found in Him with a righteousness that's not His own, but is by faith from God, that one can forget the outward presentations. Just like David did before the ark, dancing like a fool in front of the people with his hair let down in his underwear. He can forget the outward presentations, the controlled expressions of self-importance, and he can approach his Redeemer, who then says these words of Psalm 131 himself to him. Friend, My heart is not lifted up above you. My eyes are not raised too high for you. My ambitions have not left you in the dust. But I have a calm and quiet soul. So, child, come and hope in me forevermore. You are freed from escapism. You don't need your pride or your arrogance or your ambition to cope you have the righteousness of christ you're elevated to maturity being weaned off of that thing that you absolutely positively can't do without and now sitting on the lap of your father who calls you to him and you are in gospel composure resigned to hope he has called you to it by name oh church. Hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. O Lord, we pray that you would grant again to us faith to believe and allow us to see this gospel in your word and to believe. We pray that you would turn our eyes to it, even as we come to your table and enjoy the fellowship to which you call us in Jesus. Strengthen our faith Strengthen our souls that we might believe in His name. Amen.